0: Most of us, maybe not all, but most of us uh, love learning the early story in somebody's life. Uh, For instance, think about your favorite sports champion, and you see them perform whatever sport they may be doing. You see them just on TV winning everything. And then you watch a biography on them and you go, what caused them to be such a great champion? What caused them to persevere and to work hard and to have the tenacity to conquer all obstacles? And then they cut to like when they were a kid or something and they start telling this early story that has nothing to do with sports, but it teaches you like how they began to be formed in their character, Uh, even fictional characters. Think about your favorite fictional character. It's highly likely that your favorite fictional character, whoever it is that wrote and created your favorite fictional character, went back and wrote this entire backstory about their upbringing and their childhood and what caused them to be the character that they are today, even political figures. What made so-and-so rise to the top? How did they garner such power and prestige? What made them a great leader? And then they go and talk to you about the early story, what it is in their life, and what it was like when they were just starting. Even infamous characters, right? Like even the bad guys. You watch these biographies on TV about this horrible, wicked person who's done horrible things. What made them this way? Well, to understand their wickedness, you have to start at the beginning. And it goes through and tells you the early story, the start, so to speak. And that's really what we're going to do Today, we're going to look at the life of Jesus. As you know, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And if you're here today online with us, we welcome you as well. We love you. We hope that you feel loved and and welcomed in worship today. And we're going to be studying in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at the start. We're going to be looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We know a lot about the end of it, right? He conquered death. He went to the cross. He hung on the cross for our sins. They took him off the cross and they put him in the tomb. And on the third day, he conquered death. He walked out of the tomb. We all know that. But what about the start? What about the beginning? That's what we're going to be looking at in Mark chapter 1. I invite you to open there with me, if you would, Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at three significant events in the early ministry in the life of Jesus. We're going to be looking at his baptism. We're going to be looking at what we know as his temptation. And then we're also going to be looking at the fact that he began his ministry by putting together a team of people that we call the disciples. Now, you may be thinking this morning, wait a second, we're studying the baptism, and we're studying the temptation, and we're studying him calling disciples. This is gonna be like a four hour sermon. It's not. Pastor Zach doesn't believe in preaching four hour sermons. Amen? Amen. 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 <laughs> the Gospel of Mark says everything quickly, the Evangelist Mark says everything that he's going to say quickly. Uh, whatever it is, it might take Matthew an entire chapter to say. Mark says in three verses, so we're not looking at a four-hour sermon this morning, but we are looking at these three significant events, <coughs> excuse me, in the life of Jesus that really launched his ministry. This morning, if you would, if you in Mark chapter one, this morning we're going to start in verse nine. It says, "In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan." And when he came up out of the water, immediately, and you're going to see that word immediately over and over and over in the gospel of Mark, specifically in chapter 1, because again, he does everything quickly. Uh, Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, when I'm... Uh, here in the office, and someone comes into the church and says, uh, "Hey, can I make an appointment with you?" And then they come in and they say, hey, "What I want to talk to you today is, is about is baptism. When should I get baptized, and why should I get baptized?" And I love that question, and I love that God has allowed me to be a part of the church where we fill up the baptistry and we baptize people, and that God's Spirit is at work in people, and God is calling people to be saved and to be baptized. And I love that I'm at a place where I get to answer that question over and over again. I tell the people the same thing. People need to be baptized. After they discover that they're a sinner and they need the blood of Jesus and they repent, they turn away from their sin and they put their faith and their hope and their trust, they yield themselves to Jesus and they they allow Jesus to forgive their sins and fill them with hope. And once you've taken that step in faith, like once you've said, I don't just believe in God, but I wanna, excuse me, I wanna walk with God. I wanna become a child of God. I wanna become a follower of Jesus. Once you have made that commitment, you need to tell the world. One of the ways that you tell the world that you have been saved is through baptism because baptism is this picture. You're up in the water. It's this picture that I have died and I've been buried in Christ and I've risen to a new life and I'm a different person now. That's what baptism symbolizes for us, that we've died to our old self and we're raised to walk in a new life. But here's the question. If baptism signifies that you've already been saved, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He is the Savior, not the save It's kind of like one time I was sitting in a Bible study as a college student one time and we were studying the Lord's Prayer. And I don't know if you've ever studied that before, but Jesus is saying to the disciples, here's how you pray. And then he begins to pray. and Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he talks and talks and teaches them to pray and pray this. And, And then he says, and forgive us our sins. And I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. Jesus doesn't have any sins to forgive. Why is he praying For his sins to be forgiven. And I was like, my mind was being blown. My college pastor was like, calm down, Zach. There's a simple explanation for this. And he went on and and shared that he was teaching the disciples how to pray. But in a similar vein, right? Like, if we're baptized to symbolize that we have died to our old self. And Jesus has raised us to walk in a new life. Why was he baptized? And I want to answer that question for you this morning because I think it's important for us to understand uh, if one reason that Jesus was baptized was to identify with us as humans. <clears throat> you know, one of the things that we just celebrated at Christmas <clears throat> was that God left heaven and came to earth. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. The Bible teaches very clearly that we celebrate the incarnation of God, the fact that God took on human flesh. He became human. And and part of expressing that and identifying himself with humanity, we see is this baptism. One of the reasons that Jesus was baptized was to identify himself with the human condition in the human world. But not only that, there's also this, idea that the baptism of Jesus functions uh, in the gospel to close the door on the ministry of John the Baptist, to bring it to a conclusion. If you were here last week, you, you know that we talked about John the Baptist and about how he was a forerunner. He went before Jesus and prepared people for the ministry of Jesus. And then when Jesus went to John the Baptist and said, okay, here I am. I'm on the scene. I want you to baptize me. And John the Baptist John the Baptizer baptizes Jesus. What you discover, and you'll see this as we go through the rest of the gospel, there's not much said about John the Baptist anymore. He fulfilled his mission of preparing the way for Jesus. And and one of the ways that the baptism of Jesus functions in the gospel is to give this clear indication that the ministry of John has been fulfilled and is at a conclusion. And the third thing that that we know that the functions for Jesus's baptism, is not only does it close John the Baptist ministry, it opens Jesus's public ministry. So beyond Jesus's baptism is what we call the public ministry of Jesus. So when you read now and and you read the baptism of Jesus, you think to yourself, why was he baptized if he's the savior and not the Savi? Why did he need to be baptized I don't know that I would use the language need to be baptized, but I think it's noteworthy that he chose to be baptized. He desired to be baptized. And beyond the reasons for it, one of the things that I really want you to see, right? Because we can write down all these different reasons and the theological reasons that Jesus was baptized, and the literary way that the baptism functions in the Gospel of Mark. but you know what I really want you to see about his baptism is the intimacy between the Father and the Son. I like, guess what I want to grip your heart. I want you to know that the baptism closes John the Baptist ministry. I want you to know that, but what I want to grip you. Is here in the gospel, this intimate experience between the Father and the Son. Look with me if you would. One of the very few places that we see the Trinity dwelling together. In verse 10 it says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he, he who, he, Jesus, God the Son, immediately God the Son, saw the heavens being torn open and God the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. This is the voice of God the Father. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What a beautiful picture of the intimacy and the dwelling together of the Trinity. Father, Son, And Holy Spirit. And I think that one of the instructional things for us this morning is to make a notice where this beautiful experience happens in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus hears the Father speak a word of approval over him You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Notice that Jesus doesn't have to live an entire life of obedience, although he does, to hear the approval of the voice of the Father. I think it's significant that this happens early on. And the reason for that is because, and I don't know that this is true of all cultures and even our culture and all excuse me, in all times. But here's what I do know about the present one that we're living in. We are forever thinking that we have to earn the approval and the love of God. Some of the way that we function in life is that we think that this type of moment is only possible for us at the end of our life, when we've done everything right, when we've resisted temptation and served God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and we've performed for God and we've danced for God and we've done everything perfectly, then maybe at the end of my life, I'll be able to hear this voice saying, you know what, my child, I love you. You've done a great job. That is the most exhausting way that you could possibly live your life. And I want for us to realize this morning That our service and obedience to Jesus isn't so that we can have the love of God. It's because we have the love of God. We are fueled by the acceptance of Almighty God. It is a fact that we have already heard in Christ, you are my beloved and I love you. That we move forward. In other words, if you are here today thinking that the Christian faith is about earning the love of God, you've got to throw that away. And so I think it is so intriguing that this experience happened in the beginning and not the end. He has this beautiful moment with God the Father before He heals people, before He casts out demons, before He feeds the 5,000, before He goes to the cross, before He walks out of the tomb, before any of that happens, He hears the voice of the Father saying, I love you. And I just wonder this morning if you can do that. Can you hear the voice of God this morning saying, I love you. You don't have to earn the love of God. You don't have to earn the acceptance of God. In Christ, we are accepted. And you may be struggling with that today. I want to speak a clear word to that. We cannot earn the love of God. It is unearnable, but it is given freely. And that's what I hope grips you. I personally am intrigued with the reasons that Jesus was baptized. But my heart is stamped with that idea that early in the ministry of Jesus, he heard that word from the Father. You are my beloved son. and With you, I am well pleased. And so we go on. That's the baptism of Jesus. And we go on to the temptation of Jesus. That's found in verse 12. And again, everything that Mark says, he says quickly. And so just a couple of verses about the temptation of Jesus says that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, for a full study of this, (coughs) write down Matthew chapter 4, because that gives the details of what happened. And so this morning, I think it's enough to just say a couple of things about the temptation of Jesus. Instead of just going to Matthew chapter 4, and it would take us probably six weeks to study that chapter. You can certainly go there because it gives the details of the temptation of Jesus. But a couple of things that I want you to be clear about this morning. Number one, temptation is real. Temptation to sin is real. There's a real thing called temptation. There's a real thing called sin. And the scripture explicitly says here in what we just looked at that Jesus was tempted by Satan. Satan is real. Those things are real in the word of God. I want you to understand that these aren't metaphorical for other things. The scripture speaks of Satan and his temptation of Jesus in real historical ways. I want you to understand that. This morning. Now, if you're making notes this morning, if you have your notes in front of you, I want for us to think about this idea that sometimes being led by the Spirit creates uncomfortable situations or uncomfortable spots. It's interesting to me, and it may be interesting for you as well, that the scripture says in verse 12 that the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And when he got to the wilderness, he was tempted. Now, there's a distinction there. I am not teaching you this morning. Pastor Zach is not telling you that God wants for us to live in a perpetual state of temptation. Nor am I saying to you that God is the one who tempts you. It's very clear that Satan was the one who tempted him. But Jesus was in the wilderness because the Spirit of God drove him to the wilderness. And so let's just be real about this. A life of obeying and following Christ and being submissive to the leadership of Almighty God will sometimes land us in uncomfortable places. That's what happens in the scripture. Jesus is driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And he is experiencing temptation there. And I want for us to be careful as we process this thought. Because I want to say to you specifically, you see in your notes, these are two things that I want for us to write down. But the first thing that I want for us to understand about this is that this is not an excuse for us to live in a perpetual state of temptation. It is not the will of God for you to spend your life where you will always be tempted. It's important for us to understand that at some point, Jesus left the wilderness and he moved forward. And and I think that you probably can understand that there are people in our world, in our society, you may even know them, who is intrigued and attracted to and mesmerized by a sinful lifestyle. And, and so when you make a point like this, going the Spirit of God drove them into the wilderness where Jesus was tempted, they're like, yeah, sign me up for that. Because I want to live right where temptation is, because I love watching it happen. And there's stuff out there in the world that I'm really intrigued with, and I'm mesmerized by, and, and I really, truth be told, want to take a little step towards it. And so if I can blame it on God, if I can say, oh, well, God sent me there, all the better, right? That is not what the text is teaching us this morning. It is not the will of God for us to love temptation and to love to live in the face of temptation. That is not the point of Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted. So let's not allow this to be an excuse for living in temptation. Second point from this is that Jesus teaches us how to navigate temptation. You may be here this morning (coughs) and you may be a lover of God. And you may have faith. You may be a saved person. But you're looking at this going, man, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted. And I'm just going to tell you the honest truth. I wouldn't have made it 30 minutes. Because the stuff that I've got going on in my life right now has got a grip on me. And I am not being successful in temptation. I want to say to you, first of all to establish this morning this important freeing thought. It isn't a sin to be tempted. Now, you may have never thought about that before. And you may be in a sense of defeat every time you face temptation. And I don't know what your temptation is. I only know what mine is. Like the enemy is perfect and is perfectly cunning in the sense that His temptation is custom made for each one of us, right? So he's not going to send temptation uh, to you that doesn't tempt you. (laughs) He's going to send to you what looks beautiful and natural and and appealing. And he's going to do the same. And because our uh, desires are different, temptations can be different. And I don't know what yours is, but I can tell you this. just from being in ministry for 20 years and knowing myself and having lots of conversations with people about sin and temptation, what often happens is that even when we resist temptation, we feel like we've sinned. Because we say to ourselves, if I really loved God, I wouldn't even be tempted to this. And we undo what God has done in our lives. He's given us strength we resist temptation and then we feel bad about it and we say, if I just loved Jesus a little bit more, I wouldn't have been tempted to do that or to entertain that or to be a part of that. We've got to stop with that. We we don't even need the enemy at that point. We're defeating ourselves. It is not a sin to be tempted. If it were, Jesus didn't live a sinless life. Because the scripture clearly says for 40 days and 40 nights he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And we know the theological truth that Jesus was a sinless Lamb of God. I want you to be encouraged this morning that being tempted is not a sin. And if you do need Jesus to teach you how to resist sin, go make a note, Matthew chapter 4, and go and learn that whole chapter. And you will discover in that chapter what, it, what the details are of these two verses where it says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. And so the first thing we need to remember is that this is not an excuse for living in temptation. If our hearts love the darkness of this world, we need to get right with God. And if we're looking going, I wish that the spirit would send me into temptation so that I can look at it and explore it and discover it and cherish it. No, if that's where your heart is, then you need to turn to God. But also understand that if your heart has turned to God and you're still experiencing temptation, that is not sin. And Jesus can instruct us, Matthew chapter 4. Now, before we get to the third part where Jesus calls his disciples, let's look briefly at the little two verses that are between the temptation of Jesus and Jesus calling his first disciples. This is verses 14 and 15. What you're going to find here is, according to the Gospel of Mark, the first public sermon... That Jesus gave, and you're gonna be upset with me because his is like two sentences long and mine are like 30 or 40 minutes. But look in verse 14 it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I think it's important for us not just to see, but to establish that the very first sermon from Jesus' mouth was a call to repent. Here's why we look at Jesus as this loving, caring, compassionate person that wanted to include others and the people that the world pushed away, he wanted to include. And that's true. We should see that. And we should see that the ones that the world didn't care anymore about, Jesus cared about. We think of Jesus in terms of this compassionate, loving, all-inclusive person who's wearing a white robe and this beautiful flowing hair with a lamb, petting the lamb, right? I love you all. We should think in those terms because he does love us all, but he loves us enough to call us to repent. And we cannot separate the love that Jesus has for the world and divorce that from the sermon that he preaches to the world. The first one, the first thing that Jesus says to the world is repent. I think that's substantial. I think it's important for us to establish. You may be here today as a follower of Jesus and you've never thought this through. We need to think this through. You may be here today as a, as a not a follower of Jesus, as somebody who's just kind of exploring what the Christian faith is. And you need to discover this as well. Jesus loved us so much that he calls us to repentance. He loves us so deeply that He calls us to repentance. There's not a separation between loving people and calling people to repent. Calling the world to repentance was an act of love by Jesus. It's important for us to grasp that. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, verse 16 through 20 is the last portion of scripture that we're gonna look at this morning with our time. And it says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, there's that word again, immediately, uh, everything Mark says, he says quickly, and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. It won't surprise you to know that there's a whole story behind that as well in one of the other Gospels. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately, there's that word again, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. So right at the beginning of the ministry for Jesus, he pauses. And he assembles together for himself A little team of people who are going to go with him and explore and observe and participate in the public ministry of Jesus. The question is why did he do that? The reality is everything that Jesus did, everything he said, every miracle he performed, everything he said and did, he could have done by himself. Did he need Simon? Did he need Andrew? Did he need John? Did he need James? No, he didn't need them, which kind of begs the question, doesn't it? then why gather them? Why create disciples? I was thinking about this as I was studying for this message, and I was thinking to myself, not only did he not need them, if you wanted to, you could make a strong argument for the fact that the disciples at times slowed down and hindered what Jesus was trying to accomplish. I mean, he would be out there giving this lesson and then the disciples would be arguing behind him. And it's almost like, and and if you've raised kids, you probably can identify with this a little bit. But Jesus is out there talking or or healing or doing whatever he's doing. And he's like, turns around to his disciples, what are you guys fighting about now? Like they were forever getting it wrong. They were breaking stuff, like in, in the sense of the word of, they were always hindering ministry, So the question is, if the ministry of Jesus is so eternally significant and Jesus didn't need them to accomplish what he was doing... Why pause what you're doing and gather these disciples together, knowing that at many places in the ministry of Jesus, they're just going to get in the way. They're just going to confuse things and mess stuff up and say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing and cause Jesus to look away from the crowd and look back at the disciples and go, for the 100th time, would you stop doing that? Why? Here's why. Because when you start your reading in Genesis... And you read all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, here's what you discover. Over and over and over again, God has a reputation for finding delight in working through his people to accomplish his purposes. Does he need the prophets in the Old Testament? No, he could have sent an angel to do everything a prophet did. The priests in the Old Testament, did he need them? No, he could have accomplished that using some other method besides human beings. Over and over and over again, we see God using people, not because he needed them, but because he wanted them. So if you're making notes this morning, the last point that I'd like for us to write down is that Jesus selected disciples not from need, but from want. Jesus wanted a group of people around him to serve with and to laugh with and to empower people to go and feed and to heal and to do the works of God. And you may be thinking this morning, well, he's not going to choose me because I'm not much. I don't know if you know the background of these men, but they weren't much. I mean, these were not the men that a prestigious rabbi from Jerusalem would have chosen. He chose the ones that he wanted. And I, I just want to speak a word to you this morning. If you think that your life is void of purpose and that God doesn't want to use you at your home or students, that God doesn't want to use you at your school? Or for those of you in the working world, that God doesn't want to use you at your job, at your business? I want you to know that the Bible disagrees with you. That it is the character and the reputation of God to use people not because God needs people to accomplish his purpose, but because he finds delight in empowering human beings to do the almighty works of God. I want you to know that. So as we ask the question, how did Jesus get to the cross and conquer the tomb and death? We flash over to the beginning of ministry and we see his intimate moment with God the Father and the Spirit in his baptism. We see his temptation and we learn from it. We hear his first message. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we see him valuing human beings so much that he says, I want people to be on the team. I don't want to do this by myself. I could but I don't want to. I hope this morning that that impacts you. I hope that whichever of the four we looked at, the baptism or the temptation or Jesus's sermon or the calling of the disciples, I hope that one of those instances lingers in your heart and and really shapes how you see and feel about Jesus as we move forward into the week. I want to ask you to bow this morning with me in prayer if you would. I just ask you just for a moment to step into this space of now that I have learned this, what do I need to do? What is your step of application this morning? As you see the story of the baptism and temptation and calling of the disciples. you just be very specific this morning about a way that you're going to leave this room and put into practice what God has taught you through his word this morning and whether you're here or you're online with us for the first time you need to repent and put your faith in the gospel of Christ. Surrender your life to Jesus. I invite you to do that. And that, that experience and act, that's, that's where we move from being a creation of God to bring a child of God. That's where we move from knowing about God to knowing God. That's where we move from death to life. And so, if you're a spiritual person, but you've never placed your faith and your trust and your hope in Jesus, I plead with you to hear his sermon this morning. As short as it is, repent and put your hope in the gospel. Would you do that this morning? Father, what a privilege it is to see the early beginning points of our Lord's ministry. Thank you for identifying yourself with us, even as we saw that this morning expressed through baptism. Thank you for being our example in the face of temptation. And thank you for the undeserved, gracious way that you choose because you delight in it to work through our lives. We haven't even gotten out of the first chapter of Mark, Lord, and we feel so blessed and enriched and encouraged by it. We can't wait to see what you'll do with the rest of it, Lord. As we go from this place, we go with tremendous hope. Knowing that we are already loved by you. Knowing that temptation is not sin. And knowing that you desire to work through our lives. It's a great encouragement, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.